So this morning we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 7, verses 13 through 29. I know you're thinking 13 through 29, that sounds ambitious. Well, it is, so we're going to get through it, though. So 13 through 29. Starting there in verse 13. It says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Is it good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other? For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise may have, may have may at times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. And thus is the reading of God's word. So this morning we're continuing here in Ecclesiastes 7 with the, the latter half of this chapter. In the first half of this chapter, which we looked at two weeks ago now, Solomon speaks of a better way to live under the sun, under the, the curse in this fallen world. How can we live a way that is, that is good and that is pleasing to God? And the, the better way of living can really be summarized as this. You live the way that God created you to live. That is how to live the better way. You live as God has defined proper living. And the first part of uh, Ecclesiastes 7 contained these short proverbial sayings that, that we looked at, and we looked at all of those. But here in this latter part of Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon returns to reflection. So you had in the, the beginning of chapter 7 these small proverbial sayings, and he covers so much there. And then now he's moving into another time of, of reflection. How did he do these things? Was he success, successful 
in his life and living a better way of, of life. He's reflecting upon what he had just said here in, this, in the first part, but now he's speaking from experience. So he's going to recount how he did this. And this is something that we really should learn from Solomon. This, this ability to reflect on our own lives. Now, how often do we stop and reflect upon our own lives? It's not very often. But just going through this book, we're in chapter 7, he's done this numerous times, that he, that he will teach something, and then he'll stop, and he'll reflect upon how well he lived in light of what he just taught. Now, that can be challenging to us because we often don't live according to how we teach or how we think or what we say we believe, but that's why reflection is so vital, and uh, we should take Solomon's uh, example here. Um, that, that he is reflective and that he is introspective, that he, he tries to discern his own heart as he, as he, goes, through, uh, as he goes through this. And throughout this book, like I said, we've seen that he's reflected upon everything that he's taught, everything that he's lived, his life experiences. And we too should reflect upon ours. You know, hopefully we're more wise than we were 10 years ago. We should reflect and think, how did we act then? How can we act better in light of the increased wisdom that we have now based on what God has said? So this attitude of reflection is a good thing and something that we should take from Solomon. We should reflect and we should learn from uh, what we have experienced. We should reflect upon our life experiences and we should examine everything that is brought before us in light of those things. And... Uh, we need to do so through the Word of God, not just through our own experiences, but it has to come through the Word of God. So starting here in our text, uh, verse 13, says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. So I read verses 13 and 14 the last time we were together. Sort of ran out of time when talking about those. Um, but I think it's important that we cover this concept because it really does lead into this latter half of what Solomon's talking about. It really sets up what we're going to be learning about today. So after Solomon teaches us how to live a better life, he, he concludes that we live in God's world. This is not our world. We don't get to live according to how we want to live. This is God's world. God created this world, and we live in God's providence. We live from the hand of God, uh, that we cannot change what God has decreed. We cannot straighten what he has bent. It's because of this that Solomon tells us that we are to consider what God has done. Not what we have done, what God has, has done. We are to consider the work of God. Now in Psalm 111, verses 2 and 3, the psalmist writes, The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all, all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious. That's speaking of what God has done, God's work. That his work is honorable and his work is, 
is glorious. And Solomon really places God's providence here before us to, to consider it. He bids us to consider it. Consider the work of God. Consider what he has done. And what do we know about life? And I mentioned this last time we were together, that there is a crook in every lot, isn't there? There are things in our life that, that no matter how much we want to make straight, they remain bent, they remain wrong. And try as we might to straighten those things, they remain bent. They're our crook. And in every part of his course, man must expect to meet with his own crook in the lot. That this is common to all men because we are all fallen. And there are so many crooks in our life that we cannot unbend, that we cannot fix. But Solomon here tells us to look at the works of God, to consider them. He's really saying to trust in God's goodness and his wisdom. And as I, as I quoted from the psalmist in Psalm 111, it says the works of the Lord are great. He says that they're honorable and that they're glorious. So when we consider the work of God in light of the crooks in our life, the, those things that are wrong in our lives, do we stop and consider the work of God and that it is honorable and that it is good? Or do we typically just look at our own problems? Well, it's, it's usually the latter, but I think Solomon here is exhorting us, reminding us to look at the works of God, and those are God's providential works over our lives. And then he goes on, he says that we are to rejoice in the days of prosperity and be happy in them, that this is a gift of God. We are to enjoy the days that God has given us that are times of joy, that we're not to be stoic, which we've, we've looked at stoicism some, but we're really to rejoice in the goodness of God and his providence toward us, the things that he's given us, the things that he does for us. We should take joy in those things. We should be happy in them. But also in, in days of trouble, and this is typically where we get messed up, isn't it? It's not in the days of prosperity or happiness. It's easy to, to be joyful and to rejoice in, in days of happiness. But it's another thing to be joyful and rejoice in the, the days of trouble, isn't it? It's always the days of trouble where we kind of get stumbled up. But we're told here that, or we're reminded, that God has made these days just as well as he's made the happy days. The days of goodness that we have are made by the same God who makes the days of trouble. And we go through both. So Solomon really is saying, in the days of, in the days of joy, enjoy them. But in the days of trouble, consider the work of God. Remember God's providence toward you. And of course we have all sorts of passages that talks about God's providence toward you as a believer that God will do good towards you, and that, that's not something that you need to be concerned about. Although things happen in life that are incredibly tough, incredibly painful, that God is working all things for good for those who love him and call it according to his purpose. So we can expect that even in the days of trouble, that this is for our good. You know, God really does what is best no matter what we think. God does what is best. 
He has done things in his own time according to his own wisdom. And that was the teaching of Ecclesiastes 3. You go through Ecclesiastes 3, that's one of the best defenses of God's providence in Scripture, that there is a time for everything. There's a time to live and a time to die and a time for joy, joy and a time for sorrow. All these things, there is an appointed time, and that time is the time that God has appointed. So God really has done all things in his own time and his own way and according to his own wisdom. And that's what's being taught here. God also uses his own means. The what he's declared, he brings about. And though this life can frustrate us and perplex us, and that's been Solomon's journey, hasn't it? He's looking at all these things in life that frustrate him and that perplex him, trying to derive joy from those things. Uh, but even when we have the right perspective, life can still frustrate us or perplex us. We may think we're doing something good and godly, and then something tragic happens, and then we can start to question, well, were we doing the right thing? You know, and it can frustrate us or perplex us, but Solomon here reminds us that God has given the bad days as well as the good, and that really is for his own purpose. But we must remember that this is God's world. God created this world. He sustains this world. He's created all things. He sustains all things. And our duty isn't to question the Almighty, which is the, the theme of Romans 9. Who are you, O oh man, to, to question God? We're not to question God about the, the hard days. What are we to do? We're to glorify him and enjoy him every day whether that is a good day or a really bad day. So we must remember our place in this universe. And we're to do so in every situation that he has placed us in. We're to honor and glorify our creator and our redeemer. That is to say, we are to be faithful. We are to give him honor and glory, no matter what's occurring in our lives. Now, I don't find great comfort in those bad days, but I do find great comfort knowing that God has decreed that bad day for my good. You see the difference? It's very hard to, to be happy in a bad day in and of itself. But if you, remember of the, if you remember the biblical truth that that bad day has been decreed for you for your good, no matter how bad it is, you can have joy and happiness in that day. And it's in that that I know and that I can take comfort and, and rejoice that God's providence is one of the, the most beautiful doctrines in all of Scripture, that he is the sustainer of the universe and that he does uphold all things. Being his covenant people, we know that good will happen to us because of his good pleasure. So no matter if it's a good day or a bad day, it is a day the Lord has created for you and placed you in. So we are to honor and glorify him. Um, in verse 15, Solomon leans again upon his own experience, and he says that the, the righteous perish in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his, uh, his life. Now, here we have something that may be perplexing to us. The righteous die despite their righteousness. 
and the wicked live despite their wickedness. Now that can be hard to understand, can't it? Why do the righteous die? And why do the wicked prolong their lives? It can be hard for us to wrap our head around why that's the case. But we're not alone. You know, the prophet Jeremiah was also perplexed by this as well. He was a prophet. If he's perplexed, I'm definitely perplexed. He asks in chapter 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. So you have the prophet here coming to God saying, I will discuss matters of justice with you. Well, that's kind of scary on the, on the outset that you're, you're going before the, the only holy and righteous one wanting to, to discuss justice with him, but it's beside the, beside the case. Job, I mean, not Job, but uh, Jeremiah asks, Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Now, Job asks a very similar question in chapter 21-7. He says, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? And this can be quite a perplexing question. This can be a hard question for us to wrestle with. You have the prophet Jeremiah and Job who ask the same questions. You know, Jeremiah lived in a very troubling time. So did Job. Job lost everything, and then he asks, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous not? And we can see all of the, the wickedness that occurs in our world the murder of babies, the destruction of what God calls sacred, the desecration and disregard that, that man have the things uh, of God. All of these things, when we look at them, we may ask, why does such a person prosper? Why, why is that person's life prolonged upon this earth? That's a tough question because we fight back these things, don't we? We fight against the forces of, of darkness with the word of, of God. But why do these things prosper? Why do these people prosper who do iniquity? That can be a very difficult question. And ultimately, the reason for this is God's most wise, perfect, and sovereign will. That it may not be completely obvious to us why certain circumstances happen. But again, leaning upon God's providence, we know that he has decreed all things according to his most wise, perfect, and sovereign will, and we can trust in that. But I will say that I'm quite thankful that he preserved my life when I was wicked. Now think about that. We can, we can think about all these horrendous things that happen on this earth, and they, they are horrendous. And we can, we can say, why do the wicked prosper? Why are the wicked prolonged upon this life? And we can sort of forget that at one time we were wicked and that we shouldn't have prospered so long, right? But the fact that, that it was in God's sovereign will that I did and that he saved me and that I'm a testimony to that salvation, I'm very thankful that he, that he let this wicked man live so long. And that is what he's done for you as well. He has prolonged your days. And he has saved you. That while you were wicked, he extended his grace to you. So keep that in mind when we think about these things, that 
It's not that we are the, the righteous bunch and they are the wicked bunch. We are more like them than we are like God. But God has sovereignly decreed to extend our lives and to call us out of our, our wickedness. And we are to pray for those who, who remain in such wickedness that they would be saved. But nevertheless, this can be difficult. But it's important to remember that Solomon here speaks of, again, life under the sun. And this has been one of the ongoing themes throughout the book. This is life under the curse. Now, the righteous does not face eternal death, only temporary death. The wicked only extend temporal life, but they face eternal damnation. It's the complete opposite in eternity. The only gain by the wicked is under the sun. They only gain under the sun. And that really is temporal, isn't it? That things in this life are, are temporal. That the only gain that the wicked have is of temporal things. Now Solomon has already warned us time and time again not to look toward earthly gain. right? We are to look toward eternal gain. So it really is a, a shift of, of mindset that, yes, the wicked may for a time prosper here, but remember what Solomon has already taught in Ecclesiastes, that no one escapes the, the final judge, that there is justice to be done against all unrighteousness and wickedness, that though they may prosper for a time under this curse-ridden world, they will not ultimately prosper. So this leads Solomon to, to advise and Starting there in verse 16, he says, Do not be excessively righteous or be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now that's a good question, isn't it? Don't you laugh at me back there. It's tough. I struggled with this one. When I first started this lesson, I looked through Ecclesiastes. You know, I, I read through it. And I sort of took note of uh, some of these difficult verses that I would be dealing with. And this one for me was right at the top. Why would Solomon be saying, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise? That's a tough verse. And I said at the beginning, when I first started this series, I said that uh, I would be dealing with some tough verses. And when I said that, I had this verse in mind. So this was the one that I had struggled with the most. Do not be excessively righteous. Now on face value, does that sound like good advice? Don't be excessively righteous. It doesn't sound like good advice, does it? Shouldn't we strive to live a, a righteous life upon the earth? Isn't that what we're called to do out of, out of gratitude and thankfulness for God saving us that we are to live Righteous lives, holy lives, lives that are pleasing to the Lord. So is, is Solomon suggesting not to be overly thankful to God for God's salvation or, or anything like that? Is that what he's saying? There are a few ways to look at this verse. First is Solomon saying that, the first is Solomon saying that we should balance, or is he saying that, we should balance our righteousness with evil. Is that what he's saying? That we need to make sure we're part righteous and part evil. Well, it can't be that, right? That doesn't make any sense. 
Is he suggesting that we need to be mindful of how much inner righteousness we have and balance it with wickedness? No. Should we be half-measured? Should we strive to have an equal amount of wickedness as righteousness? Well, this, could, this can possibly be one way to interpret it, or it can't be because it contradicts other parts of Scripture. He's not speaking here of internal righteousness. He isn't suggesting that in one instance you should tell the truth even if it costs you your job, but then to be sure to balance that out, rob a bank so that you have enough money to live, right? That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying be a perfect amount of righteous and a perfect amount of wicked. So that doesn't make any sense. All right, second, is he saying that we should be righteous people, but we need to be careful when displaying our righteousness before those who are wicked? Now, this one is a bit more difficult to answer because we are to live righteously before those who are wicked, aren't we? We're, we're called to be Christians in every area of life and in front of everyone. We need to live according to our faith. What we profess to be true, it needs to be manifest in our lives in front of, in front of others. We need to live in such a way that makes them question what is different about us. You know, if we look exactly like them, they'll not notice any difference between us, right? That we need to live as God has called us to live in this world. You know, if we look like them, then they will think that we have the same father. So we can't look like them. It needs to be evident from our lives that, that there is a difference, that we are of a different flock, a different fold, a different father. And we are the ones with the good father, not the bad father. However, we've seen, we've seen in some instances uh, for Solomon to suggest that we need to be careful in what we do. For example, earlier in Ecclesiastes, Solomon warns a man not to work so hard and to be so bent upon his work that the lazy, wicked man does not envy him and seeks to persecute him. So Solomon has given us that counsel. And in that passage, Solomon suggests that, that men should be balanced, that you shouldn't have two hands full of work or, and you shouldn't have two hands of, of laziness, but that you should have one hand of work and one hand of relaxation to enjoy what God has given. So he's already told us that we need to live balanced lives and that we should have one hand for work and one hand for enjoying the fruit of that work. So maybe Solomon has in mind that the, the Christians should seek to live a quiet and peaceful life, being faithful in what has given him among wicked people. That seems reasonable. But I think this second possible interpretation really leads to the third and correct interpretation, which is very similar to the second. It's just slightly different. Uh, Charles Bridges warns uh, in his commentary, he says, the two strange things that have fallen under Solomon's observation, the righteous perishing in his righteousness and the wicked escaping with impunity, suggested double cautions. On the one side, the externally righteous need to be guarded against a false religion, and even the upright against a false display of true religion. On the other hand, the wicked escaping for a time let them not presume upon continued security. End quote. Though the Christian will never be perfect in this life, we should strive for holiness. We should strive to be 
a people that's pleasing to God, a, we should seek to have a life filled with gratitude, and that gratitude should manifest in, in good works before men. So we'll never be perfect, and we should strive for holiness. Those are two facts of the Christian faith. We will never be perfect, and we are to strive for holiness. However, you can knock yourself out trying to be holy. Did you know that? In doing so, this could lead to sin and persecution by those who are wicked. Now, what do I mean? A person can strive to become so righteous in this life that he becomes obnoxious. And I know this because I used to be this person. This may be a person who sticks his nose into everyone's business with his own opinions. He goes out of his way to correct everyone instead of overlooking certain sins and iniquities. He can become wise in his own eyes and display a vain righteousness. He can think himself and speak in a way that represents himself as being better than others. Now, Jay Adams remarks that this type of man becomes like a Pharisee when he is overly righteous. Uh, have, have any of you ever heard the phrase, cage-staged Calvinist? I'm sure you have, right? Yeah. This term is used to describe those who are usually new to the Reformed faith and believe what is taught in Scripture about the doctrines of grace. That means they've arrived at the truth. They know the truth of Scripture. That part is not the problem. They come to the knowledge of the truth, and that is a good thing. But in their desire and zeal, they develop this hypercritical spirit, and they become self-appointed theology police. Now, this is a problem. Arriving at, at the truth of the doctrines of grace should do the exact opposite, shouldn't it? The fact that we are all sinful and that we're all fallen and that the only reason that we have salvation is because it's a gift from God to unworthy men. So the last thing it should really do is create in us a hypercritical spirit. But this can lead to an imbalanced life. Sometimes it's hard to see the, the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life that's, that's like that because they become more focused upon winning a debate than telling the truth and love. Now, notice, truth and love come together. It's not loving to tell a lie. You must tell the truth, but you must do it in a way that's representative of your Savior and a reminder that you were just like that other person apart from grace. Now, I hope you're thinking as I say this, yes, but what about the truth? The truth matters, doesn't it? Yes, the truth matters. Yes, but what about the truth? Aren't we able to defend the faith at all costs knowing that people hate us for it, right? The answer is yes, you are to do that. You are to defend the faith no matter if everyone in the world hates you. That's what you're called to do. But people, if they are to hate you, should hate you for the truth of what Jesus says about himself, not because you're acting in a pugnacious manner. Now, there's a difference there. People say, Jesus said that they will hate you because they hate me. Well, they should hate you because they hate him, not because they hate the way you're acting. 
see the difference there. The difference is they should hate you because you're telling the truth of, of Scripture, not because you're acting in a pugnacious manner. We are to stand upon God's word and we're to proclaim it as God has revealed it, but we need to do so in a wise way. We're not to be pugnacious. And I think that's really what Solomon is getting at here. I do want to be clear that I'm not suggesting that people should remain silent just to get along. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the truth needs to be delivered, but it needs to be delivered in a godly way. Looking at verse 18, 18 really reemphasizes this point that we, we must restrain wickedness, but at times we must restrain our righteousness. I think this is what's taught in Matthew 7, 6 when Jesus warns us not to cast pearls before swine or give to the dogs that which is holy. I would say that we all know people like this. People who are so entrenched in their wickedness that a conversation just can't take place. And maybe you've had those conversations with, with people like that before, and all you get back is ridicule or slander or just a desecration of, of God's name. And try as you might, you just can't have a conversation about it. And I think that's part of being wise here. That, that there's an understanding that there's only so far you should go, uh, especially when it comes to slander or comes to persecution. You, sh you should tell the truth, but maybe there will be other times that God, God opens up ways to, to minister to that person. Uh, in verse 19, Solomon says that wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten powerful persons in the city. By being wise on this point, you can avoid needless trouble. You can avoid a lot of heartache if you're wise on this point. That wisdom must be tempered with humility and reverence, else it will be proud. Well, speaking of wickedness, Solomon continues in, verses, uh, in verse 20. says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. So Solomon reminds us here that there really is no one who never sins, right? There's no one who never sins. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This is one of the essential truths of our faith, that all have, have sinned. Even the righteous man, Ecclesiastes says here, the righteous man does not do good continually. No, the righteous man sins. Charles Bridges says, For there is not a just man upon the earth that sins not, and therefore who does not need the strength of this divine wisdom in his spiritual conflicts and temptations. We must not overlook this humbling testimony to the universal and total corruption of the whole race of man. This important statement is the foundation of all right views of truth. Till the plague is known, the need of a remedy will never be felt, and the only true remedy will be worthless in our eyes. That's this essential truth that even the righteous man sins. The wicked man sins, but even the righteous man sins. And that really is the testimony of, of Romans, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all are in desperate need of God's 
forgiveness and his grace. And Charles Bridges continued on the saying that in heaven, the man will be made perfect. On earth, a just man can do good, but there is no one who does good and sins not. So in heaven, you will be perfect. And on earth, the righteous man can do a good thing. But there is no one who does continuously good. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is another reason that we must be on guard of our own self-righteousness, isn't it? That we're to be on guard of thinking of ourselves too highly. That we need to remember that, that we have fallen short as well. So this is a reminder not just to the unbeliever who thinks that his good works can save him and get him into heaven. Right? There, there are many unbelievers who say that. Well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, you know, I'm a good person, right? You hear that all the time. So this warning isn't just for that person. They cannot get to heaven because they don't have any good works. Right? We know that. They stand condemned. But also the Christian needs to remember that he himself is not blameless. That you have not lived a blameless life. Don't we commit grievous sins as Christians? We do, don't we? There's a provision in our Westminster saying that, that even Christians can fall into wicked and heinous sins for a time. For a time. But we can still sin greatly. Can we not find ourselves at times thinking evil things about other people? Yeah. Should we think things that we wouldn't say to those people? No, right? It's, it's a problem. We can feel indignant when people rail against us or curse us. Yet, as Solomon has been throughout this whole book, introspective, we should be introspective and search our own hearts. Have I done this to others? That's what Solomon's saying here. Ha have I done this to others? Have I cursed people? Well, yes, I have. But Solomon says not to take it seriously because people say all sorts of things. We say all sorts of things. Some things are completely false. Don't take those things seriously. Don't give those things your time. If they're false, they're false. Now, you do need to take seriously a, a loving rebuke from a friend, right? And we've seen that uh, two weeks ago. But not a slanderous word from an enemy. Don't waste your time on that. I want to try to wrap this up in these last verses. I already uh, told the deacons that they won't have to yank me from here with a, with a crook. So I'm going to be mindful of the time here. Uh, in these last verses, Solomon laments that even though he has sought wisdom and he has turned his heart to it, that it's still far from him. So Solomon has pursued wisdom with all of his might. He says, I turn to it. And you think about that turning. He, when he says turning, he means I'm, I'm putting all of my effort toward becoming wise. I'm facing wisdom and I'm searching for it. That's, just, that's as if to say that everything else that I've been doing, I've placed behind me, and now I am focused upon wisdom. So he says, I've turned my heart to this, I've sought this, and it's still far away. Though 
though he has spent his entire life seeking out wisdom, he admits that this search was difficult. Perfect wisdom was not within his reach. It's not something that he could obtain. He could not obtain perfect wisdom in this life. Now, on the outset, I said that I think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, or pretty close to the end of his life. It's written as a man who reflects upon his life before he dies. Now, the older we get, we can give testimony that we reflect more, don't we, of our lives. When you were 18, you didn't reflect much of your life. When you're 35, you start reflecting a little bit, and the older you get, the more you reflect. So this, I, I truly think, is Solomon looking back over his life and reflecting upon his life. And I think this is a type of repentance narrative of, for Solomon and a, a lamentation of his own wickedness. You know, we don't have a, a, anything written about Solomon repenting, do we? There's nothing written that Solomon repented. But I think that this is somewhat of a repentance story of Solomon because he keeps looking back over the course of his life and he tells people, you know, you need to follow after the things that are eternal. But he sought his whole life after the things of this world. Now, verse 26, I think, is very telling. He says, And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Now, it's interesting that he puts this verse here. Because up until this point, he's not mentioned women at all, has he? There's been no mention of, of women in Ecclesiastes here. He said nothing about a woman who's ensnared the heart of man. This woman is certainly wicked, who, who binds him with a snare and a net and chains. Why would he mention that here? Why would Solomon mention women here in the context would suggest nothing of, of women. It's just like he's talking about that no one does righteous, no, not one. Oh, it's hard to find a, a good woman, the, the wicked woman ensnares the heart of man. Like, Whoa, where did that come from, Solomon? Well, if you think about it, what was his snare? He's reflecting upon his life. He's looking back over his life. He's talking about wisdom. He's talking about folly. He's talking about all these things. Then all of a sudden he mentions women are snares. Well, he went after foreign, God, or foreign women who brought in their gods, and he built temples, high places to those gods. That's what he did. And from the time of Solomon leaving, dying, the whole story of, of the kingdom is whether the, the king is good or bad, they won't tear down the high places. Well, who built the high places? Solomon built the high places. Solomon's sin here really led to the destruction of the kingdom. That they kept chasing after false gods, the gods that he built because of the women that ensnared him. So here you have Solomon looking back over his life, and out of nowhere, it seems, he mentions these women are snares. Well, it's because this was his snare in life. This was his downfall. It's because he, it was his biggest sin. It's what Solomon 
is known for other than his wisdom, right? He's known for chasing after these, these women. Though he sought to be wise, which is a good pursuit, he was in, entrapped by the snares of evil women, and he pursued wickedness. And he concludes here this chapter by speaking a central truth, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes, many devices. He means by this many ways of sinning. And that's really the point of Ecclesiastes. He's, he's given wisdom on how not to sin and how to enjoy God's providence, isn't he? He's telling us, this is what I've learned. And he throws this nugget in here, his biggest sin, and saying, watch out uh, in this way. But we all sin and we all fall short. Now, Jay Adams again remarks, and I'll say this in closing, that Man seems bent on proving that he is at heart a sinner. Man seems bent to prove that he is at heart a sinner. Well, isn't that true? We tend to prove ourselves sinners, don't we? And in need of, of grace. So this is another lesson of, of wisdom from Solomon to point us to the gracious one. That though we don't deserve it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the, the ones who are righteous upon this earth do wicked things. That there is forgiveness in a Savior. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us uh, this word. Uh, we thank you for giving us Solomon's uh, account here in Ecclesiastes that, uh, that would reorient us to living uh, for uh, eternal things, not for the temporary things, uh, impress upon us um, uh, the joy that, that we can have in you and in your salvation. And now we ask that you would prepare our hearts for worship, help us to store up the, the treasures of your word and uh, live out of gratitude and, and reverence to you.